Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Friday, May 24th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, primary candidates rally with McDonald's workers. Marianne Williamson will be in the DNC debates. A look at Warren's campaign right now. And Sanders and Gillibrand propose a tax on financial trading. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Yesterday, McDonald's held its annual meeting for shareholders. At the same time, a group of McDonald's workers went on strike after delivering their latest reports of sexual harassment to the company. They're organizing as a group called Fight for $15 and a Union, which is an effort to do, well, exactly what it says. The group wants a minimum wage of $15 an hour and wants to unionize McDonald's employees. The effort is supported by the SEIU, or for those of you not into the whole brevity thing, the Service Employees International Union. The Fight for 15 campaign is already organizing around the 2020 election as a key way to gain media attention, and it is definitely working. Reading from an article in New York Magazine by Sarah Jones, quote, The campaign says it will hold town halls in early primary states and host walk-a-days where candidates will experience a day in the life of McDonald's workers, end quote. And just a few sentences later in that same piece, quote, it will deploy its own organizers in Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada, and New Hampshire, and plans to hold protests at the first two Democratic debates. A voter engagement program will launch in Michigan and Wisconsin, among other key battleground states, the campaign says. It's a major show of force from an increasingly successful movement, and presidential candidates are paying attention, end quote. So, much like the stop-and-shop strike we covered last month, this is the new place to be if you are a Democratic primary candidate who wants the union vote. Already we've seen candidates on the picket lines, including Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Bill de Blasio, and Jay Inslee. Beyond that, Bernie Sanders sent an email on Wednesday urging his supporters to join McDonald's workers on their picket lines. And then, he went ahead and held a town hall event streamed live on Facebook to discuss the issues at the heart of the protest. The Sanders livestream began with a group of four McDonald's workers, all people of color, sitting at a table and speaking about their experience. According to Adriana Alvarez, the first woman to speak in the event, McDonald's has been fighting this union effort for more than seven years. She introduced Sanders, and then here's a clip from his opening remarks. Listen in. Four or five years ago, when people talked about raising the minimum wage, from $7.25 an hour, where it is right now, to $15 an hour, we were told that we were crazy, we were extreme, it will never happen. But because of the courage of SEIU and Fight for 15 and thousands and thousands of workers who stood up and told the American people that we are human beings, we cannot raise our families, we cannot pay the rent, We cannot put gas in the car on eight or nine bucks an hour. We need a living wage, and that living wage is 15 bucks an hour. And you stood up in cities all across this country, and the American people and politicians began to listen to you. And state after state said, you know what? These workers are right. We're going to raise that minimum wage to $15 an hour. Right now, because of the efforts of SCIU and Fight for 15 and all of you, seven states in this country have now passed legislation to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. 
Okay, now I want to play a trio of short clips from Blue Rainer, which led into another discussion with Sanders. I'll just play those now to give you a sense of what the workers are saying in their own words. Uh, good morning, good afternoon to some others. Uh, my name is Blue Rainer. I'm from Tampa, Florida. I work at McDonald's. Um, you know, years ago, years ago, um, I started having headaches. And just to come find out a couple months, a couple months later, like, you know, th those headaches were from dental problems. Um, because a lot of workers, a lot of workers in our shops, we let, we have lack of health care. So lack of benefits. Um, that's the basic things that us workers, we need to survive. We're all under, we're all overworked and underpaid. In America, unions are the best way and seems to be the only way that workers can get ahead in this economy and, you know, get that fair shot at American dream. Unions give us a seat at the table. Unions give us a chance to make our pay better. Unions give us better working conditions. Unions also give us health care and, you know, other things that our families desperately need to survive in this economy. One thing my grandmother always told me, and this is one thing that I live by to this day, and it's the reason why I started fighting. She told me, if you want anything in this world, you must fight for it. And when you get it, you must fight to keep it. And then Sanders responded with this bit. Well, thank you very much. And, and let me tell you that your grandmother was a very, very smart lady. Uh, because the truth is, she is absolutely right. Nothing is ever given to working people. And the only time that working people make gains is when they organize and when they stand up and when they fight against the kind of corporate greed that we see today. That went on for way longer, but you get the picture. There is a link in the show notes to the entire event. So look, here's the thing. In the 2020 Democratic primary, a $15 federal minimum wage has now become a baseline position. Looking at data from Wikipedia, which I do admit is a little funky, but still, we see that of the 24 major candidates currently in the race, all but five are in favor of a $15 minimum wage. The only candidate with a firm no in that area is Andrew Yang, who also advocates a $12,000 per year universal basic income, which, he argues, when added to the existing minimum wage, adds up to nearly the same thing. And doing the math, he's close, but still about $3,000 shy of what a full-time, every single day of the year, 40 hours a week employee could make at the federal minimum versus a $15 rate. Anyway, as I read this, there are four candidates for whom no data is available yet on Wikipedia. So let's see if we can fix that. Those are Steve Bullock, Pete Buttigieg, Jay Inslee, and Wayne Messam. And this is where using Wikipedia data gets rough, because Inslee was on the picket lines yesterday in Chicago at McDonald's headquarters. Oh, and check this out. Here's a little clip from Buttigieg posted to Twitter yesterday. I'm Pete Buttigieg, and I am standing shoulder to shoulder with people in the fight for $15 and a union. When it comes to McDonald's workers, uh, they are living with low wages, harassment, uh, frequent violent assault, and uh, they deserve better. Uh, I think it's so critically important at a moment like this when uh, presidential politics is heating up and all of us have an opportunity to take a stand for workers, uh, that we support the workers who are coming together to 
fight for a union and a fair wage. Uh, that kind of representation is what the middle class is built on, but too many workers have to deal with tough working conditions uh, and low wages. And uh, in America, uh, in this day and age, we can and must do better. So I'm proud to stand with the McDonald's workers across America from coast to coast standing up for $15 in a union. Uh, and I believe we'll be able to succeed in making things better for them and so many other workers too. Oh, cool. And guess what I just found? Here's a tweet from Steve Bullock. Quote, it's time for McDonald's to do better. I stand with the brave men and women across the country speaking up for fair treatment and an equal shot at success. End quote. He also links to a Vox story about the protests and this wage and union campaign. And that leaves us with a grand total of one candidate without a listed statement on the issue. And I suspect Messam will clarify that soon. So here we are. It's 2019, and essentially all the Democrats agree that a $15 minimum wage is now a mainstream policy. That is a truly huge shift from 2013, when President Obama called for a minimum wage of $9 during his State of the Union address. Even that didn't work. The federal minimum right now is still $7.25. This is legitimately a massive political shift in just the last few election cycles. Now, beyond just the wage thing, a huge number of candidates have supported this specific strike. And the last time this happened, just last month, the stop and shop strike ended with the workers' existing union getting what it demanded in the first place. So let's see if that can happen with McDonald's, too. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, next up today, great news for Marianne Williamson, a candidate who I have only mentioned a couple of times on this show so far. Her campaign announced yesterday that she has met both thresholds for getting a spot in the DNC debates in late June. That virtually guarantees that she will appear on that stage. And specifically, it means that she has met the 1% polling threshold in three qualifying polls, and her campaign has brought in more than $65,000, including at least 200 individual donors in at least 20 different states. Now, it's still possible that she could get knocked out by another candidate, but that seems super, super unlikely right now. Williamson's success puts her in the top 12 candidates who have met both criteria. That is a great place to be, especially for a candidate who is polling farther down in the pack. There are 20 spots total in the debates and 24 people vying for them. At this point, some of the later entrants into the campaign, like Bennett, Bullock, de Blasio, and Moulton, might not make it. 
Similarly, some of the lesser-known candidates like Gravel and Messam are also looking at real problems qualifying. There are still about three weeks left to hit those donor marks and get that data over to the DNC, so expect to see a lot of hustle from that group. Now, while we're on the topic of Williamson, I'd like to read from a Politico article that gives a little flavor on her campaign. Of course, we can expect to hear from her directly at the actual debates. All right, reading from Politico, quote, Williamson, a friend of Oprah Winfrey and a spirituality guru, has centered her campaign on a theme of love. We have someone who has harnessed fear, racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, some of the worst faces of the human character for political purposes, Williamson recently told Time magazine. There is only one way to override that, and that is to harness love, decency, compassion, forgiveness, and mercy, love for each other, and love for our country, and love for our unborn great-grandchildren. We need to harness that for political purposes. End quote. At New York Magazine, Ed Kilgore wrote an article titled, Slowly and Persistently, Elizabeth Warren is on the Rise. It's all about how Warren has attained her current position in the field, and how she continues to do well, despite all the new entrants to that field. Reading from the article, quote, Elizabeth Warren has emerged as the solidly third-place candidate behind Biden and Bernie Sanders. That's evident in horse race polls. In the Real Clear Politics average of national surveys, she's at around 10%, comfortably ahead of Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, with the rest of the field, including the steadily fading Beto O'Rourke, not making much of an impression so far, end quote. Now, look, I did just do a story two days ago about how early polling is not all that reliable, and I stand by that. But one thing it can indicate, at least, is who's near the top and who's down in the mess of the margin of error. That real clear politics data says Warren is clearly a top-tier candidate up there with Biden and Sanders. According to a morning consult poll that claims a margin of error of just plus or minus 1%, her favorability numbers look great within the context of Democratic primary voters. She is the only candidate to exceed a 50% favorability rating among Democratic voters, aside from Biden and Sanders. She also has a 12% gap of people who have never heard of her, plus another 16% who have heard of her but have not formed an opinion yet. Both of those numbers are way bigger than they are for Biden or Sanders. That means she's got some run room to meet more people and maybe bring them on board. According to the New York Times, Warren also has a major operation running in Iowa, which could help her in those first-in-the-nation caucuses. Reading from the Times, quote, Warren has about 50 paid staff members already on the ground in Iowa, far more than any other Democratic candidate is known to have hired in the state. The growing Warren juggernaut reflects a bet that rapidly hiring a large staff of organizers will give the senator an advantage over her rivals who are ramping up their efforts at a slower pace, end quote. And beyond that, Warren has been releasing policy papers at an almost alarming rate. I've covered a bunch of them on this show, and Warren continues to earn her slogan, I've got a plan for that. One more bit here from New York Magazine. Quote, The major rap on Warren, among political observers, has involved poor electability credentials, which is a big deal in 2020, given the obsession of Democrats with denying Trump a second term. Actually, in nine head-to-head trial heats against Trump published this year, Warren has led in six, including two this month. End quote. Translation, If the election were held today, Warren would already have a solid shot of winning. 
and a bunch of people haven't even heard of her yet. You know, I think she might have a plan for that. Yesterday, I covered Kirsten Gillibrand's new proposal for a family bill of rights. One of the parts I didn't get into much was its funding source. She wrote, quote, We'll pay for it with a financial transaction tax which would raise over $777 billion in the next decade, end quote. Well, today, let's talk about what that tax is. The new bill is called the Inclusive Prosperity Act to Curb Wall Street Greed, and it was introduced on Wednesday by Bernie Sanders, Kirsten Gillibrand, Representative Barbara Lee, and a bunch of House Democrats. It would levy a tax on certain financial transactions used by big Wall Street firms. In a press release, Sanders suggested it would generate up to $2.4 trillion over 10 years. At its core, the tax would shave a little bit off the top whenever stocks, bonds, or derivatives are bought and sold. Specifically, we are talking a 0.5% tax on stock trades, a 0.1% tax on bond trades, and a 0.005% tax on derivative trades. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I traded a bunch of bonds and derivatives was, you know, never. And I think in my lifetime, I have sold a stock maybe five times. Okay, so here's what's up. On Wall Street, computers have transformed the game. I mean, of course, we all know that. But still, in the modern system, traders can buy and sell fractions of a stock in fractions of a second, attempting to make tiny bits of profit in an instant. If you do this at a super high volume, it does add up. In an explanation of the bill, Sanders wrote, quote, Computer-generated algorithms allow some traders to obtain information a fraction of a second faster than other traders who then rush to buy or sell before others can respond, turning what would otherwise be a ripple in the market into a tidal wave that destabilizes the system. This technology is not a tool that benefits the average American family, end quote. Your average American family tends to buy a stock and hold it for a long time, you know, like at least months or years in a retirement account. This new tax would affect everyone trading this stuff, but obviously it would hit people much, much harder if they're trading constantly in gigantic volumes. It would discourage that practice by making it slightly less profitable and essentially shift the balance of the market back towards simpler investments like the stuff that normal people do. The bill explicitly gives a tax break to individuals who make less than $50,000 a year and couples with incomes under $75,000 a year, making it cost nothing for them. Gillibrand weighed in in the press release. She said, in part, quote, More than a decade after Wall Street greed brought the American economy to its knees, big banks are still using greed as a business model and are still engaging in the reckless behavior that helped cause our economy to crash in the first place. We need to do everything we can to prevent another financial crisis. The Inclusive Prosperity Act is a bold step to clamp down on reckless and speculative trading. End quote. Now, if you're wondering why Gillibrand earmarked only $777 billion for her family bill of rights when this thing is supposed to generate $2.4 trillion, I think there's an element of the Warren strategy here. So Warren has a plan to tax the ultra-wealthy and she's used portions of that money over time to fund her different policy proposals. So my guess is Gillibrand took $777 billion out of the $2.4 trillion, and we're going to see how she wants to spend the rest in the coming weeks as she releases new policy proposals. So stay tuned. 
Well, that's it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Now, I'm super excited to welcome all our new listeners from the Muller She Wrote podcast. I'm glad to have you here, and I can't think of a nicer show to combine with this one. Also, full disclosure, today's show was recorded very early in the morning because I had some, let's just say, dental stuff done at 7 a.m. before the holiday weekend. So, by the time you listen to this, I am very likely floating away on a cloud of Netflix and dreams. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Tuesday.